Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Edward Fisher. He is the Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Vanderbilt University in the US. He's also the founder of Mani Plus an award-winning social enterprise in Guatemala that develops and produces locally sourced foods to fight malnutrition. Dr. Fisher advises the WHO Europe on the cultural, cultural contexts of health and serves on the board of the Maya Education Foundation. His research focuses on issues of political economy, values, well-being and development. He has authored or edited a number of books, including most recently The Good Life, Aspiration, Dignity and the Anthropology of Well-Being. Dr. Fisher is currently working on a project that examines the ways moral and economic values are intertwined in the high-end coffee market. So, Dr. Fisher, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. As I said before we started, uh, I took your great course. Uh, <laughs> Again, I forgot about the title of it. Yeah, the great course. <laughs> Uh, so if you could tell us that, but, but thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's a real pleasure to everyone. Ricardo, it's a treat for me. I love what you're doing with the dissenter and it's, uh, it's a real opportunity to get to, to talk to you and be part of this conversation. So thank you. Okay, it's my pleasure. So let me start with this question because uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but I've been having quite a lot of evolutionary thinkers on the show, evolutionary psychologists, anthropologists, biologists. So there's a lot of evolution going around here. But then in anthropology, there's this field uh, or this subfield of cultural anthropology that uh, I mean, as somewhat of a different approach, right? It focuses more on culture and how uh, uh, perhaps we could say proximate aspects of people's lives influence their behavior, their well-being that we're going to talk about and so on, right? Absolutely. And in fact, anthropology, especially anthropology in the United States, is somewhat unique that way. And it goes back to our heritage. We consider the founder of anthropology to be the German Franz Boas, who immigrated to the States in the late 19th century. And his idea was of a field and the name anthro, anthro, anthropology uh, to study all of humanity and to study it in an integrated way. And in some ways, I think the academy is catching up with this early vision of anthropology because we've spent in the Western tradition, we spent the last several hundred years becoming ever more specialized. Uh, Bruno Latour, we call it purification of the disciplines. And we've had lots of scientific advances based around that. But I think we're starting to realize that everything is integrated that the environmental concerns cannot be separated from the economic concerns, that cultural issues are not separate from health issues. Uh, and so anthropology started with this idea, U.S. anthropology, of integrating the fields, uh, of integrating the study of humanity. And so we have this peculiar situation where we have four subfields in the states, uh, archaeology, biological anthropology and evolution, uh, linguistics, and cultural anthropology. 
And so I interact in my department uh, with, with people from all of those subfields. And personally, I find that really interesting. I mean, I went into academics to talk to smart people doing different kinds of things, and it provides a, a context for that. Yeah, and uh, talking about that specifically, do you have any kind of integrative approach in anthropology? Like, for example, do you think that we should try as best as we can to integrate the knowledge that comes from cultural anthropology, for example, with the other subfields of anthropology and even uh, on a broader scope with other fields like, I don't know, for example, other social sciences like sociology and psychology and do what uh, E.O. Wilson, I guess, defined as consilience in the social sciences. I would buy into that vision, and I think that there's a lot of possibility there. Not all of my colleagues in the subfields would. Uh, there are many cultural anthropologists, and as you said, I'm a cultural anthropologist, who are skeptical of the biological bases of evolutionary studies, for example. Uh, personally, I think that anthropology offers the potential to be a really big tent that everything can fit under, the study of humanity, right? I mean, that obviously uh, involves political science and behavioral economics and psychology uh, and all of these things. At the same time, I would say I'm skeptical of a single unified a uh, rigid model that could integrate all of these things. I think uh, what anthropology in its better moments does well is a theoretical ecumenicalism of sort of borrowing parts of theory that can explain particular aspects of, of life. Uh, but I do, I think that we should be moving toward consilience, uh, to use E.O. Wilson's words. And I would, uh, for example, love to see a future of universities without departments and schools, for example, and that maybe had uh, clusters of people doing research that could change over time. Yeah, that would be very interesting and nice. So. Uh, another thing, uh, do you think that there are aspects of anthropology and of people's behavior, culture, etc., that fall outside the scope of science or the scientific method, strictly speaking? Yes. Uh, excellent question. Uh, and it is, again, something that is controversial in different subfields and different corners of my discipline and, and, and other disciplines. But I do. I think that we have, uh, for example, in recent years, we've really been focused on evidence-based solutions to real-world problems, be they medical problems or social problems or political problems. And I think that that's good. I, I believe in evidence. <laughs> I, I, I think that that is, is positive. At the same time, we can lose something in trying to force human experience into quantifiable sorts of data. Uh, and numbers are important. Uh, the number of people killed in a genocide, for example, it's important to know how many people died. At the same time, a big number, my country of specialty is Guatemala, and people often say during the violence there in the 80s, 200,000 people were, were massacred. That's important to know. It's a big number. At the same time, what you lose in those big numbers is the impact. Each one of those people had a family were integrated into a social network, were part of communities. And the numbers uh, hide that 
in some way, the, the impact that it had on people and their subjective experience. Mm -hmm. So I guess that we can classify it under the rubric of cultural anthropology, but you developed a sort of sub-subfield that you called the anthropology of well-being or positive anthropology. Could you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, anthropology for a long time has focused on what some of my colleagues call uh, dark anthropology. Uh, anthropologists are known for going out to remote areas of the world. We're often uh, privy to seeing things that other people don't see and sometimes awful kinds of things. Again, going back to massacres and violence that take place in remote locations or just the sort of, of, of tensions that occur uh, in the field. And so for many, many years, we focused on the ugly side of political systems and, and, and structures that, uh, that discriminate and that, that promote violence. And that is good. We should point those things out and call them out. At the same time, most people don't live their lives every day sort of uh, feeling like, like, like the world is awful and things are just terrible. And we all feel that sometimes, but even people in very marginal circumstances, people living in poverty, they still look for the positive aspects of their life and try and increase their own well-being to, to use that term. And so I think it's important in anthropology that we point out not only the faults in globalization and uh, economic networks, global economic networks, but that we look at positive examples of ways in which people have adapted these to serve their own ends. And in looking at positive examples, we can we can learn from other cultures in ways that change change us and change our culture. Uh, and well-being, I think, is a nice integrative concept. So well-being, it almost includes everything, right? It includes health and it includes economic uh, position and it includes social status and all of these things. And so I think talking about it in terms of well-being and not just economic uh, success, I think, is, is useful. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was just remembering Abraham Maslow's pyramid of uh, the things that motivated people. And then at the basis, there was the most basic things like, for example, food and shelter and water and things like that. And then as we moved up the pyramid, we got to things like uh, I, I don't know, self-realization and things like that. So th those are also the kinds of things that you are interested in studying that people value in their own cultures, right? Absolutely. And I, uh, absolutely. And I would say, of course, I mean, food and shelter uh, and, and sex, the things that Maslow would have put as the basic things, those are really fundamental. If you're hungry, and, and I do work in malnutrition, so I, I've seen this. If you're hungry, nothing else really matters, right? It's just, it's a, I need to get some food. And your body just kind of does that to you. But for most people, except in those very extreme circumstances, uh, the other things in Maslow's pyramid are just as important uh, in some ways. And, and we forget that sometimes. And this goes back to your earlier question. Sometimes we reduce everything to economics and people's material conditions. 
And yeah, people, you know, that that is important, but we're all motivated by other kinds of values. And yet you and me and we have this privileged position and we're talking over the ocean right now and we're in nice circumstances. We see ourselves as being motivated by various moral and social and political concerns. Uh, the mar most marginalized people in the world are also motivated by those same kinds of concerns. And I think it's important that we recognize that. Mm -hmm. So uh, what people consider to be a good life varies across cultures, right? It's not the same uh, across all cultures. I guess that probably at least some of the basic stuff is universal, right? Like food, shelter, water, and things like uh, sex and things like that. But as we move up the ladder, let's say, in terms of more abstract concepts and uh, morality and things like that, then there's where we get the biggest differences, right? You're absolutely right. And that is the basis of uh, sort of cultural anthropology going out and looking at other cultures around the world to see precisely those kinds of differences. Uh, in the, the book that you mentioned, The Good Life, one thing I try and do is take those differences and say, well, are there some commonalities? Now, this would be at a level of abstraction that isn't a particular uh, you know, moral code, who you can marry, for example, you know, it doesn't get to that level, but it does seem like people uh, around the world, and there's some evolutionary biology evidence to, to underline this, uh, a sense of dignity and respect uh, that we could sort of put under equality in some sense, although it's not strictly economic or material equality, is very important. It's very important to our closest primate relatives, uh, and it's very important in human societies around the world. Uh, and so I would say that there are some common elements, what I call dignity being one of those, that people want to be respected. Now, how the, the form that that takes absolutely varies from culture to culture, uh, but we're, we seem to be highly sensitive across cultures to uh, inequalities that seem unfair and that erode our, our respect or dignity. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So uh, let me just add a follow-up to that, because since I, I've been having a lot of uh, evolutionary thinkers on the show, what do you think about the concept of human universals as applied to our psychology, our behavior and things like that? Do you think that that is a useful concept in anthropology, for example, since, as you say, there's uh, a lot of variation across cultures. <laughs> wow, that's a it, that is a great question and a and, and in some ways a loaded one. This is a controversial topic in in anthropology and the social sciences. Personally, I believe that there is there's something to that. We do share a common biological makeup. We're all Homo sapiens sapiens. There are sort of some common structures uh, in, in, in our brains and such. At the same time, we have been learning over recent years how, how plastic, how, how malleable many of these structures are uh, and that culture actually changes our neural pathways in certain ways. And so it breaks down this divide between nature and culture that some of these universals are based on. I also think that it, it can be dangerous to 
look too hard for universals. Uh, I think that they're, they're there and it's an interesting question and something that we should be exploring, but sometimes there's a tendency to reduce us to our biological makeup. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of the universals turn out to be very, uh, very, very broad, sort of like my dignity thing, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, it's nice as an abstract concept, and I can see that it applies everywhere, but uh, the, the devil is in the details, as we say, right? And it varies from, from culture to, to culture. Mm -hmm. So when you were mentioning that people need to focus a lot uh, on positive things in their lives to motivate themselves to do something, do you think that that also connects with the meaning that they are able to extract from their lives? I mean, the, does that make their lives more meaningful if they are doing things that follow what they would consider a good life? Yes. Uh, yeah, the, the easy answer to that question is just a, an emphatic yes. Uh, that is exactly right. And so different cultures have different value systems that we all, we all realize. Uh, having the ability to pursue those values that a culture or that an individual thinks is important is, is the linchpin, is the absolutely key part uh, to well-being uh, and the good life. And I would say to bring it home uh, and not just think about this in exotic or foreign context, to bring it home, I think in the West, we have been uh, sucking a lot of dignity out of low-level jobs. When we reduce low-level jobs, when we make people into just robots, <laughs> it, is, it does not contribute to their well-being. It's great for economic efficiency. It's awful for people's uh, sense of, of well-being. Uh, and yes, I, I think it's an issue that we really need to, to struggle with. But yes, being able to pursue one's values is, is, is fundamental. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so you've already mentioned the word values several times, but uh, what would be a proper definition of values, just for people to get a clearer picture of what we're talking about here? Oh man, Ricardo, you're going you're going straight for the the tough questions. The good, uh, that's good. Uh, I would say that values are simply uh, what matters most to us. Uh, that uh, they are the um, the ideal by which we measure. Uh, what is what is worthwhile and what is important uh, to us, uh, and they can vary uh, from all sorts of fields. We can have moral values and social values and cultural values and political values, uh, and each of these has certain. Um, we can think of them as their own little worlds in a way. And so like in an economic value world, let's make as much money as we possibly can and accumulate as much as possible. In certain moral value worlds, uh, the, the mandate might be just the opposite, right? Let's be as generous as possible and create these social networks. And so that's how I would define values. And if I can, I would just go ahead and say my theory of values around that is that we have various 
value worlds or value regimes that we participate in, uh, and that a lot of life is about trying to reconcile those. How do we convert our uh, our social values into economic values when we're making decisions about what we buy or how we invest? How do we convert our social values into political values? And so a lot of life is us juggling these different sorts of values and trying to reconcile them in some way. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a, a very interesting point because we really have different sources of values, right? Like our family values, our social values, our political values, religious values even. So, I mean, sometimes it's it, it probably is complicated for people to jug juggle them all around and try to make sense of perhaps sometimes conflicting values, right? Exactly. And this ties in really nicely to your earlier point, actually. So we've spent the last few hundred years, as I argued, uh, having narrower and narrower fields of academic study, but also in society, you know, sort of segregating aspects of life and society, economics and politics and religion and all of these things. Uh, but the rub is in bringing them together. And in real life, we have to bring them together. And it puts a lie to uh, a, an anthropologist, a colleague, Keith Hart, wrote a book one time called The Hitman's Dilemma. And he was writing about a mafia hitman who had to go kill a, a, a friend of his who had betrayed the group. And he breaks into the guy's apartment and he's, uh, he's about to shoot him. And the guy's like, no, 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 please don't shoot me. And the hitman says, it's not personal. It's just business. But it's never just business, right? And especially if you're going to kill somebody, that's personal. And it's the same way. We often say, oh, I'm sorry I made that, that decision that, that treated you poorly in some way in terms of moral codes or religious codes. But it was just business. Uh, but the fact is, it's not just business ever, or it's not just economics. They're all tied in together. Uh, and so I think we need to stop thinking about them as separate entities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's try to connect these questions with economics and also with another aspect of anthropology. So in economics, people have these concepts of stated and revealed preferences, and they usually put more value on uh, revealed preferences because <laughs> people prefer doing their uh, lab experiments or something like that and then really or look at data and they say that how people behave, for example, is what's true about themselves and not really what they say they do or what they say they should do, for example. And uh, also another point, because recently I've had on the show Dr. Lee Kronk, and he, back in the 90s, he studied some tribes and he found out that sometimes what people say doesn't correspond exactly to what they do. So, for example, there are tribes where people say that they invest more in son, in daughter, uh, 
yes, in daughters, yeah, in daughters, but then when he goes and analyzes the data about parental investment, he finds out that they in, in fact invest more in sons or vice versa. So even what people have as a culture or what they transmit to each other as culture and what they think is the proper way of conducting oneself, even that sometimes is a little bit fuzzy uh, and doesn't correspond exactly to what they do. So uh, would you like to comment on that? <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for asking that question and setting it up that way. And Lee Kronk's work is, is excellent. So that's a, it's, a, it's a great example of that. As you've said, we often think, and this is, this is sort of a, a economic thinking that has become really cynicized uh, in some way. It becomes really cynical in the sense is, okay, people say they do a lot of things, but what they, they don't actually do, but it's what they do that matters. That's the revealed preference. And that's the real, that's really what they really want to do. And I would argue, as you're suggesting, that when people say they want to do something, even if they don't do it, what they say they want to do is still important. Uh, and it still represents something. It's not that they're lying <laughs> when they say. So let me give a specific example. At one point, I was studying people who bought organic eggs in Germany. Uh, and there's a, there's a high preference in Germany for buying organic products in terms of percentage of the market. The Germans buy more organic and, and fair trade kinds of things than anyone else. So this is, we can say that's a value that many consumers in Germany express. And I interviewed customers before they went into a supermarket and I asked, what kind of eggs do you buy and why do you buy the eggs? And an overwhelming majority said that they bought organic eggs. But then looking at the sales data, many fewer people were actually buying those eggs uh, than said they did. Now, a cynical view of that would be, well, people are just lying. They want to seem like they're more morally virtuous than they are when they're talking to you and you're interviewing them, but then they go and do what they really want to do. I would argue that Many of them who say they want to buy organic eggs, they actually believe in those values. They would like to have a world that is more ecologically sustainable. They would like to have supply chains for their food that treat everyone, including the animals, well along the way. And they really believe that. And yet at the moment of going and buying, and organic eggs can be twice as expensive as other eggs, at that moment, and they're thinking about their monthly budget and how much cash they have in their pocket and their kids that they need to buy school supplies for tomorrow, uh, the economics of it sort of nudges them, to use behavioral economic terminology, nudges them toward the more economic uh, view. At the same time, I think that many of those people, this is a hypothesis, but I think that many of those people would support uh, a system, for example, where there were only organic eggs to buy and they kind of forced them to 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 put their money where their morals are uh, i think another example that shows that is we're much more likely in the future to agree to something that will cost us materially or economically but that we think is virtuous uh, it's like so next year will you will you you know will you donate more next year to charity 
that's much easier to ask than saying, will you write me a check right now? Uh, people would say, often say, no, I won't write you a check right now, but many of them would say, oh, well, yeah, next year I'll increase my donation and give you a little bit more. And so to me, that says that the stated preferences are important, but that people sometimes need, and this is where behavioral economics comes in, people sometimes need mechanisms that help them align their values with their economic decisions. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Uh, I was just wondering because uh, this is a very difficult question and there are different things here that we have to try to disentangle, right? Because uh, on the one hand, maybe the economists have a point when they say that uh, what people do or what they in fact do matters. But, uh, but on the other hand, maybe... Uh, do you think that we could say that sometimes one of the reasons people aren't able to uh, to stick to their values, for example, is that they are somewhat constrained by their circumstances or something like that? Absolutely. And uh, thank you for pointing that out, because I would like to underline, I agree with you. What people do, revealed preferences are important. It's important that we study it. It's important that we document it. It's important that we work it into our models. And I guess what my correction to that is, we should also take seriously what people say is important to them. Uh, and so to not dismiss it, not to say we shouldn't dismiss revealed preferences, but then also not dismiss uh, stated preferences. And in a way, this lets us get at the complexity of humans. Walt Whitman famously said, do I contradict myself? Yes, for I contain multitudes. And I love that quote because I think, uh, okay, so this morning there's a, we had some, uh, some sweet rolls in the, in the break room. So do I want a sweet roll? Yes, I do. They look really delicious and they're good. Uh, I'm, I would like to not put on any more weight. Uh, and so I simultaneously want the sweet roll and I don't want the sweet roll. Uh, to understand the complexity of me and my values and my motivations, you have to see both of those things. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we have all of those contradictions and then I, I guess that we can also connect this, what we're talking about, with the concept of the self, right? That is also a cultural construct and that has, uh, plays a very important role in how people think about themselves, how they contextualize themselves in their society and things like that. Right? Absolutely. And we're starting to realize how complicated the self is in that way. And in the Western tradition, we've, we've seen this as being very autonomous and myself, myself is fully here, right? You can see all of myself. Uh, and yet we're starting to realize that we change depending on social context. We change depending on all of these things. So really, myself is not just myself. It's connected to all of these other people. And I go home and I'm a father and a husband and other and oneself. I'm here at the office and I'm a professor and a, uh, and a researcher. And so these multiple selves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so we've already touched on values and preferences, but then there's also another broader concept of meta preferences that you talk about also in your book. So could you explain what that is about? Yeah, and I think uh, sometimes when we talk about values and value systems, and I used the term value worlds earlier, it sounds very rigid. Uh, that there is a, a religious value system and here's the codes and you can do this and you can't do that and you should do this. Uh, and in fact, the way in which we actually live our values is much more creative and fluid than that. Uh, we have to interpret what, if, let's say if one were, were Christian, be kind to your neighbor. Well, what does that mean in a particular circumstance? Does it mean, uh, and that kind of creativity people are playing with all the time. And so I introduced this idea, or I, I borrowed other people, philosophers and, and economists have, have used this term of meta preferences as well, that we have some very high level values that we that we pursue. But in thinking about it at, at that level, rather than a code of conduct that we have to follow, but, but some broad values that we're trying to pursue, then that leaves us a lot of leeway of how we actually realize those values in our behavior, in our action. Uh, and I think that's the way it, it, it actually works. Uh, yeah, be honest. You know, that's many people would say that's a value that uh, honesty that I would pursue. Does that mean if your your partner says, "Do I look good in this?" Does that mean that you should be honest, or you should say, "Oh yeah," even if you think that maybe they don't? Uh, so it's the idea of meta values allows for the creativity of applying our values. I think. Yeah. So I, I'm cu curious about this. Uh, we've already touched on other aspects of this question, but do you think that there are aspects of human culture, like, for example, having to do with values and meta preferences and things like that, that you, you would say are completely or can be completely detached from uh, biology, for example, or do, do you do you think? Do you, <laughs> yeah, yes, I I know I know that this will be another complicated question. Uh, let, let me just add this, or do you think that uh, things like, for example, the ecological conditions people live in that include as well their social conditions, like, for example, the way they establish relationships with others, how their sociality works, uh, the, I mean, all kinds of social dynamics that they establish that that could uh, influence the kinds of values that are successful in their societies. Wow, yeah, you boy, you really go for the, the big questions here, Ricardo. I love it. Yes, that's a, a, a great question. Uh, and there have been, especially social psychologists like Steven Pinker and Jonathan Haidt have argued that there are some uh, universal moral values that have some sort of basis in human biology and human evolution. Uh, they're quite broad when you look at what those specifically are, uh, that, uh, that 
killing another person without cause is considered uh, immoral in every culture. But what a justified cause is varies a lot as well. And so it's essentially saying that some kinds of intentional deaths are prohibited in every culture. Uh, but it doesn't tell us much more beyond that, uh, that people tend to respect uh, a, a social hierarchy. But those social hierarchies vary dramatically. Some societies are patriarchal. Some societies are matriarchal. Some are democracies. Some are, you know, we have all different kinds of things. And so I think the bio, I, where I'm going with this is I think that there, there very well could be the, the seeds, the biological or evolutionary seeds for some of our moral values are that way. But they're very broad and very vague, uh, and so that they, in their, their realization actually varies a lot from culture to culture. And so the short answer would be yes to both of your questions. Is, is there some sort of universal, perhaps evolutionarily derived basis for these? Yes, I think that that's possible. They're, all human societies have a sense of disgust, uh, the things that they find disgusting, but what those are vary a lot from society to society. So it's sort of like my idea of dignity. Dignity is important in all societies, but what that means varies. Yeah, and uh, picking up on that topic of dignity. And, uh, and actually, let me, uh, it just occurred to me, let me add one little thing to that. Uh, the beauty of human evolution is that we have evolved these huge brains that probably have more capacity than we absolutely need to survive. And that capacity has allowed us to overcome the uh, constraints of natural selection uh, in many ways. We have birth control now. We have uh, technologies that we can live in the middle of the desert or in Antarctica for periods of time. So we've been able to overcome the biological constraints that natural, so in many areas, that natural selection has imposed on us. And that's what we forget sometimes to mention when we're talking about these evolutionary universals. So yeah, all of that stuff can be true. Uh, at the same time, we can we can also uh, we can trump our biological mandates with our culture many times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that even Steven Pinker and people like Richard Dawkins, who wrote the selfish uh, the the selfish gene, right, that they would even partially agree with you yep. in the sense that they say that we have uh, our biologically based human nature that they say is supposedly universal but at the same time they say that we have to try to fight some aspects of that same human nature namely the negative ones from from a moral perspective so we even they say that so Right. Absolutely. And we can. And it gets back to your earlier question about a positive anthropology you're looking through. So we can the we can we can caricature their work, Richard Dawkins' work, as just looking at the constraints of human condition, 
or we can look at it in a slightly different way and say, yeah, there are these sort of things, but there are also all of these possibilities to overcome those or to, to, to position them in different ways. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, we've already mentioned this when we talked about the work of Abraham Maslow, but uh, so there, are, there is a basis that people need to fulfill in life at least food, shelter, water, and all of those things. But then in your book, you mention uh, three great components of, of people in people's lives. That is aspiration and opportunity, dignity and fairness, and commitment to a larger purpose. So, I, I mean, just to tease things up a little bit, do you, would you say that these are human universals or, or not? <laughs> Good question. I, 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 my, I, I, I would, uh, in that same sense that I was just critiquing others, that they're very abstract uh, in some sense. Uh, but I do think that they are and that they're interrelated. It is important, as you suggested and 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 I said earlier, uh, that we be able to pursue our values and there be a pathway to pursue our values, uh, and that is this idea of of aspiration that we want. We can envision a better life for ourselves and a better life for our society, and if there's if we do not see any pathway to moving toward that that's incredibly eroding of our sense of well-being and our sense of self. And so that is important. Now, what those goals are that we want to work for vary uh, tremendously. Uh, but yes, I think in this broad abstraction, sort of aspiration and opportunity, dignity and fairness and commitment to larger projects, we do find those in all cultures around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now uh, just perhaps the one of the final questions that I have here. Uh, you already mentioned the example of eggs in Germany and how people deal with them in terms of their values and how the market perhaps influence their real decisions, I guess. But uh, how does the market allow for the expression of people's values? I mean, what, what would you say is the importance that the market plays in that aspect? A uh, great question. I would say uh, two angles to that. One, the rise of what is called ethical consumerism uh, around the world, particularly in the West over the last couple of decades, has been tremendous. And so to me, that reflects people buying fair trade products, for example, or organic products or eco other ecologically conscientious products. And so to me, that says that people would like to be able to express their moral and social values through their economic decisions. And I think that that's great. I think it can move the market in a positive direction. At the same time, it's, it's also insufficient. We also need to think about market structures as reflecting our values. Very often, politicians and economists think of, tr talk about the market as if it's a natural force and something that we cannot resist that the mar you know the market will find a way and yeah we can put up some regulations but everybody's going to figure out a way around the regulations and so trying to stop the market is like trying to stop the the oceans or something it's just it's fighting a losing battle but if we see the markets as constructions 
economic and political and, and, and things that we have built up ourselves as human constructions, that means that we can change them and that we don't have to be uh, beholden to the market, but that the market can be beholden to us. And I think that we're at a moment now in the world, actually, where we can rethink the balance between private interest and public good in our institutions. We're at a moment now where institution, economic institutions and international political institutions are under threat. Uh, the UN and NATO and the World Trade Organization and all of these things are, their power is rapidly being uh, er eroded and we need to come up with a, a new way of managing our politics and economics. I actually, not to date this too much, but I think we're at a crossroads in the world and I think this could either be 1933 and we go down a nationalist, fascist, scary pathway, or it could be a new kind of 1945 where we, where we say, okay, this is a different world in which we're living in the 21st century and we need to come up with systems of political and economic governance that can reflect the reality of the world. Right now, I mean, Apple and Google and these corporations are in many ways more powerful than nation states. They're able to hide their money uh, in legal ways uh, so that it cannot be taxed, whereas the EU or the United States would like to tax that money. Uh, we need to make sure that the market serves our social and political purposes rather than letting uh, a, a caricatured idea of the market uh, lead us down a, a pathway of greater and greater inequality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let us just explore one last topic that is a big one in your work, and I guess you, you care a lot about it. Um, there's these Maya or Maya people in Guatemala, right, that are, they, I think they are very poor and they depend a lot on coffee production to, to, live, to lead their lives and things like that. So uh, could you tell us about a little bit about their culture that you studied, their values and in what ways they are able to connect their values with coffee production in this case? Thanks for asking that. Yes, absolutely. So half the population are of Guatemala, of 14 or 15 million, are Maya peoples. Uh, oftentimes in popular uh, imagination, we think of the ancient Maya uh, building their beautiful city-states rising up out of the rainforest. Maya people are very much alive and well today. As you said, that while they're half the population of Guatemala, they are marginalized uh, and the most impoverished by any indicator. Income, education level, nutrition, health, life expectancy, they are the worst off in Guatemalan society. And it's a very racially based discrimination that, that causes that. Uh, it's, it's not an accident. Uh, the Maya peoples also live in some of the best coffee growing areas of the world uh, and for a long time coffee was working on coffee plantations was seen as 
the employment of last resort. I mean, it's just it's it's seasonal labor, though the, it's very hard work. The pay is very low. The living conditions are awful. People get sick. Uh, it's just been a poster child for for exploitative labor. But what's happened in recent years, and this are, this is a nice way to to sort of tie a lot of things we've talked about together. In recent years, the coffee market has changed. Starbucks, but not only Starbucks, people have gotten used to drinking better and better coffee, uh, particularly in Europe and the United States and Japan, but all over the world uh, over the last 20 years or so. As it turns out, good coffee, better quality coffee is grown at higher elevations. And so the coffee market has shifted away from these huge exploitative plantations to smaller high altitude growing conditions, which is exactly where the Maya peoples were pushed when the Spaniards and the Germans and everybody took all of their land. So there's a, there's a poetic beauty to the way in which the market has changed. Maya peoples, and it's also a great example because it's a way in which people, uh, these markets connect people's economic conditions, but also their values. So people in Portugal and in the United States and in Germany and other places have been buying better and better coffee, paying more, willingly paying more and more money for quality coffee and fair trade coffee. So they're expressing their values through the market. This results in Mayan farmers having more opportunities to enter into this market in Guatemala. The Maya farmers, for their part, see coffee very differently. They see it not as, uh, uh, they see it as a way to make money. Uh, and to improve their material conditions. It is, it is work, it's export, they don't drink their own coffee for the most part. Uh, and yet, they have values tied up with this coffee market as well. They would like to, they don't want their kids to be poor farmers, right? They would like them to go to school and maybe open a store or in a dream of dreams, maybe become a professional somehow. Uh, and so they see a coffee market as a means for pursuing their values and their view of a, of a better life. It also ties into Mayan farmers highly value making a living from the earth. That's seen as being a, a real and virtuous way to earn a living, is to grow things and to sell things that you grow. And so the coffee has been able to converge with Mayan value, where it's been able to connect Western consumer values with Mayan values in this nice way. It's not a completely rosy story, so I don't want to make it sound like everybody is happy and Mayan farmers are just doing great. There's still a lot of inequalities in the system, and even the Mayan farmers growing coffee who are successful would seem very poor to most people who are drinking their coffee. Uh, but nonetheless, it is an example of how different kinds of value systems are able to come together uh, through, through a market. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I mean, throughout most of the interview, we've been focusing on uh, the cultural values of specific cultures, of uh, constricted cultures, let's say. But now we are kind of uh, looking at a network of cultural values from different parts of the world and the kinds of results we get from that, right?
Yeah, great example. Yes, absolutely. And we're also living in a moment, and this ties back to our institutions uh, that we developed in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, really aren't suited to the current reality. Uh, these Mayan farmers have smartphones. Uh, most of them have relatives who are living in the States or in Spain or somewhere else. They're all on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, this, their culture is connected to our culture uh, in really fundamental ways, and not just through they pick the coffee beans that we drink. Uh, so, yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so perhaps we could end on that positive note, I guess. <laughs> and uh, uh, Dr. Fisher, before we go, uh, would you like to mention some places on the internet where people can find your work? Uh, yes, I uh, for uh, my popular articles, I have a website, tedfisher.org, where I post uh, uh, videos and, and, and popular kinds of things that I, I've read. So I, uh, I, would, I would mention that. Uh, I would also, before we completely end, I think I would like to tell you that uh, what you're doing is really important. Uh, we're living in an ever-polarized uh, public debate space uh, and bringing together different voices from different perspectives in a reasonable way is very important right now. Uh, and so I would like to commend you for the work that you're doing with the dissenter. Okay, so thank you very much for the kind words, particularly coming from you, that you are a person that I really admire. And so, I mean, thank you a lot for, for those words, Dr. Fisher. And uh, I will be leaving links in the description box of the interview for your work, your books and other things that people can go and check out if they are interested in that. Uh, so, Dr. Fisher, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show and hopefully someday we could have another conversation. I would like that. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I've already been doing this for more than two years now and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and I really, really need your help to keep this channel sustainable. It's really an urgent matter now. So please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there or go to any of my monthly subscription PayPal links in the description box of the interview or even to my main link on PayPal to make a big donation, a one-time big donation or several times big donations, whatever you prefer. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Janne Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, 
My producers is our web, Rosie, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ilewin, Osborne, Dr. Ian Gilligan, and Sergio Quadriano. And my executive producer, Michel Ruzieski. Thank you for all.